Hello and welcome back to another episode of DSLR Film New Podcast where Mitch from Planet5D.com joins me to discuss all kinds of stuff. We've got new lenses, we've got some new IP that will make your video encoding faster, and we've got some other cool stuff to talk about. But first, Mitch, it's been a week and a half since I've talked to you, maybe two weeks. What have you been up to, man? Planet5D. Planet5D. Hi. Um, let's see. Well, let me tell you about Chicago. Laid on me. At a surprise trip, we decided to go to Chicago on a whim. And it took me forever to try to find a place to stay. Let me tell you the good and the bad about Chicago. Which one do you want to hear first, good or bad? Uh, let's start with the bad. Traffic. <laughs> have you been to Chicago? I have. Um, generally, oh. if I can, oh. I take the uh, rail, above ground rail system because it's uh, much easier to get around. Uh, and get a cab if at all possible because driving in Chicago is a nightmare and parking in Chicago is even ah. worse. Holy crap, is it hard to find a place to park? Oh, yeah, you aren't kidding. And uh, we went to the museum the first day we were there, and I, and I was really glad because the museum charges $28 for valet parking. And if you park in one of the garages, it's like 32 bucks. $28? Yeah, well, <laughs> one of the hotels I looked at was $60 a day for parking your car holy on crap. top of the daily rate. I'm like, holy cow. So we, we, we made the mistake. Uh, this is a little too much info on Chicago, I'm sure. But we made the mistake of trying to save some money, right? So the downtown hotels were like between $300 and $500 a day. And I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> I'm not paying those kind of rates. So I found a, a hotel with suites 30 minutes outside of town. And I told my kids, I said, well, we can save like almost a thousand bucks by going out of town and, and staying in this cheapy hotel as opposed to staying downtown. So <laughs> then I discovered that the highways are clogged from like, 7 a.m. to just after 9.30. Because uh, we the second day, we decided to go a little early, and we left at like 8.30 and got stuck for an hour and a half. It's a 30-minute trip from our hotel, the hotel we picked to downtown. And it took us an hour and a half in the traffic to get there. Like, this wow. is insane. So if you're going to Chicago, do what DJ said and stay downtown if you can afford it. Uh, and uh, I'm because because even if we were to take a cab or some kind of maybe the L we could have gotten from the suburbs, I don't know. But that was it was insane. I'm uh, my kids are like, we love Chicago, but we're not going back. Well, now, the good thing was pro tip for you, Mitch if you yeah. stay on the Wisconsin side and you don't mind taking an hour long train ride. The train goes to Chicago in the morning. You can get there at like 7 or 8 in the morning. And the last train leaves at about 2 a.m. Don't ask me why I know that. But uh, <laughs> you can stay in hotels that are about 70 or 80 bucks a night. And you will waste an hour both ways. But <laughs> you don't have to fight the traffic. You ride the train. Puts you right on the main L platform so you can go all over town and you know, if it's not near the train, chances are it's probably not somewhere you're wanting to go or you're going to have to figure out some other way to get there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, on the good note, uh, I was incredibly impressed with uh, 
the, the museum, the um, uh, art museum downtown. Yeah. Phenomenal. And, and the Impressionist Hall just absolutely blew my socks away. I was, I mean, you, you see these paintings by Van Gogh and Seurat and, and Thoreau, depending upon which person you're talking to, whether it's Thoreau or Seurat. Um, <laughs> Monet, we have, we have some, well, first of all, our museum in St. Louis is free, okay? Uh, so you can go in any time. We cruise through the museum all the time here in St. Louis because it's free. You go to the museum in Chicago and it costs you like 30 bucks a head just to walk in the door. But uh, everything's expensive in Chicago. Uh, so anyway, the Impressionist Hall was just, you see these things in print, you know, you've seen them in books and magazines and stuff, but when you see them in the flesh, you do, I mean, I got goosebumps several times. I'm like, this is so cool. Were there any like uh, surprises, you know, for example, Salvador Dali, when you see a Dali painting, you always think of it as a huge painting, but then when you get there, it's like stamp size. Was there anything like that that just caught you off guard? Well, I had, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the, and I can't come up with the, the title, Sorot, Sorot, my daughter said it's Sorot. <laughs> um, he's an artist, so I should, she should know, but he's the guy that did the pointillism. Okay, yeah, the little tiny dots with the like yeah. lady in the umbrella. Yes, and and there's this one that he did is very famous of in the park where there's all these people in the park. Yep. And I don't know the exact title. That sucker is wall sized. Really? I mean, it's really? massive. Uh, I had a poster. I told my kids when I first went to college, I had a poster of that on my wall that I could you could check out posters of art prints from the from the school library. And, and it was, you know, a little 11 by 16 or something. And then it, you see this thing and I mean, it's massive. That thing is like 20 by 15 or something. I mean, it's feet. It's just massive. And, the, and it took him like five years to do. Uh, anyway, and it's, <laughs> that stuff blew me away. I, I don't care so much for the modern art, you know, the statue of a woman's dress standing by itself that that doesn't really the, the impressionist made an impression on me <laughs> anyway so that was my little trip to chicago what have you done in the last week and a half oh man i'm just getting ready for my trip to peru uh side note guys oh. if you're looking for uh shows in the feed in the next week and a half uh, they will be missing because i will be out of town this show and the next show with devin will be the last two shows for about a week and a half. So scheduling note there. I am uh, heading up to cover the Volcano Festival that's going on wow. in Lima. And then I managed to wrangle that into an extra short flight over to Machu Picchu. And then uh, I think, Cus is it Cusco? I don't, I don't know. I don't take care of my own itinerary. So I'm hitting <laughs> all those places. Uh, it should be pretty fun. I'll be there for uh, about two weeks, a week and a half, week and three quarters. So I'll be back just in time to rush out some show notes and do one more show with Mitch when I get back. But uh, it should be pretty fun. Otherwise, I'm trying to charge every single device I take with me via USB. And I, that sounds crazy, but uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. I found this company that supplies a battery charger for every type of camera 
that allows you to charge the camera's batteries via a 2-amp USB port, which means instead of traveling with a bunch of cords, cables, and adapters, and special uh, you know, 120 to 240-volt converters for my equipment, I can simply travel with a four-port USB hub and a little dongle that has the two-prong European-slash-South-American-style adapter, and no other effort will be required on my part. Now, this may be a pipe dream, and I may end up having to cave and buy some stuff while I get there, but I am trying to accomplish this, and hopefully it works. Uh, and probably get a post up on this this weekend so you guys can see yeah, some like of the stuff. Yeah, and I'm traveling with a, an LX100, a Sony A7S Mark II, and a GoPro. So the charging capabilities shouldn't be too crazy. Hopefully, I can get it done. On that note, I think it's probably... Time for the news. Time for the news. First up on the list is actually a lens I'm kind of excited about. Uh, Panasonic has been doing a really good job of releasing their Leica Semilux lenses. And, you know, I, I credit Panasonic, but they always have Leica stamped on it. So who's to credit? I don't know. I'm going to go with Panasonic this time. Who cares? Uh, the point is, this is a really sexy lens. Uh, they did a great job with the Panasonic 42.5 millimeter F1.2. And they also have the 25 millimeter F1.4. Now they're getting into the wide range and providing a 12 millimeter F1.4. That's about a 24 millimeter equivalent for those full frame lovers. And at F1.4, you'll get some nice bokeh. The lens will set you back about $1,300. It's waterproof, dust proof. And when I say proof, uh, resistant would probably be the proper term. But it is a beautiful prime, uh, solid metal, and we should be seeing this shipping in August. Now, Mitch, you know some micro four thirds shooters as well as myself. Uh, what do you think about this? Is this an exciting wide-angle lens? And is 24 millimeters a focal length you like on your full-frame body? Wow, that's a boatload of questions, DJ. Maybe I should start with one. Okay, um, what do you think a 24 millimeter is a focal length? <laughs> it's, it's an awesome focal length if you're shooting landscapes and buildings. Uh, what about portraits? If you well, see, I when I get the portraits, I, I'm kind of torn between some of the experts who insist that you have to have a full body. You know, I I cut body parts off. Okay, I'm a I'm a chopper. <laughs> that sounds bad. My my uncle, for example, he every time we get together and we're we're showing photos and stuff, and I show him something, he's like, "Well, you cut off her feet." I'm like, I don't care about her feet. You know, cut them off at the knees or something. And, and so to me, I, I'm a guy who likes faces, right? We tend to look at faces and sure, sometimes it's nice to see what somebody is wearing and whether or not got Adidas shoes on or Nike or something. I don't know. I don't so care. wide angle for portraits isn't really your thing is what you're saying. Not, it's not my thing. Uh, I'll tell you right off the bat, it's not my thing. Uh, narrow depth of field is my thing. Uh, so F1.4 is is really nice. But I don't necessarily care so much about the 
So where I find 24 to be really uh, attractive is if I'm doing street photography. Uh, a lot of times, or filming in the streets, it makes your subject feel like it's you know they're with a lot of people, and it's not right. so wide as to to give you that distorted uh, barrel effect that makes their head get skinny at the top and their legs and arms stretch out in an awkward manner. Uh, it's a great field of view, and f one four is very nice. Leica, the Panasonic Leica Similux lenses are all really well made. They're all metal housing. They're very solid, very bulky lenses. What you'd expect out of, I almost want to say, L-series glass for a micro four-thirds body. If you're looking for a sweet prime set and you have uh, several thousand dollars to spend, buying these would be the equivalent to buying your L-series glass for a full-frame body. Now, if you're not rich, there are cheaper options. There is a, a, I believe it's the Olympus 12 millimeter F2, which, you know, isn't that much of a sacrifice. And, right. you know, it's the same thing with a, a Canon glass. You know, you can buy the 50 millimeter F1.8 or you can buy the 50 millimeter F1.4. And when you get to the 1.2, bam, there is all of the money. Now, <laughs> the other question on, on this for you, Mitch, is do you know anybody who's excited about this lens besides me? No. That's an obvious no. No. <laughs> no. All right. Well, I'm excited about it. I like wide angle. Um, right now, I'm actually doing the podcast on a 12 to 24, and I think I am at 12. So replacing that with a 12 millimeter lens at f1.4 instead of f2.8 would be really nice. And on micro four thirds, which, again, is an example of what I'm using right now, you can see that f2.8 background is out of focus. I am crisp and in focus. And at f1.4, we could do even better, although not nearly as good as f1.4 on a full frame body. The 24 millimeter from Canon is spectacular. I have trouble investing $1,000 in micro four-thirds lenses. Uh, it's well, my other question. Shoot it. I mean, it's, well, it's $1,300. That seems a little steep for a micro four-thirds lens, isn't it? It is. It is. Um, if you want to buy something almost equivalent, there are some manual focus lenses in the same focal range that provide... Uh, an f1.6 and an f1.4 uh, or you know uh, aperture size and they're manual focus and they're about 300 to 600 dollars uh, so this is double or triple what you could get in other categories and in the past i've kind of championed micro four thirds as an affordable option but uh, you can get out of control if you want and spend all of the money uh that, that doesn't just include uh, uh, the Panasonic glass with the autofocus capabilities, but you also have the uh, Voigtlander. Uh, is it semi? It's not semi-lux. Semi-lux is like, a, what's the Voigtlander's word? The Nocturnalux or something like that. You know what I'm talking about? No, you're no, shaking I his head at me. Okay, well, uh, uh, Voigtlander makes some very expensive micro four-thirds lenses that are manual focus as well, and they'll set you back $1,000 a pop. And uh, they have a 25 millimeter, a 42.5 millimeter, and a 17.5 millimeter. And they're all manual focus. They're beautiful lenses. And you are paying for the F1.2 aperture on those guys. Uh, you can go out of control, but I think that's the same with every type of camera body that you buy. There's always that lens that you want, that you jones after, that will set you back 
thousands of dollars. And Canon's no exception. Mitch, what's the most expensive Canon lens you can think of? Oh, well, gee, the 600 millimeter. Isn't that like $1,500 or $15,000? Something like that. It's insane. Yeah. So, I mean, that you, you, buying that might be, uh, you could get a car. Or you could get a really big freaking lens that weighs probably as much as a small child. Either way, both a great value. (laughs) Yeah. Small child. All right, moving Um, on. Wait a minute. Okay. We forgot about the cinema. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Uh, The Canon CN 30 to 300 millimeter is 40,000. That's one of their zooms. Oh, man. Is that the, I that's, the, the Google. that's the cinema lens? Yeah. Yeah. The, those are even more expensive because uh, the they're parafocal. So uh, there's a lot more work that goes into the innards to make it stay in focus as you zoom in and out. And plus, that's a crazy range. I mean, yeah. wow. So oh. Let me ask you a question. Okay. On the Amazon thing, it says suppresses... Digital flare. You know what that is? Have you ever heard of that? Suppresses. How do you pronounce that? I don't know. I'm guessing. S a g i t t a l flare. I tried to Google it and didn't find. Suppresses. Looking in here right now. I'm gonna say I've got no idea. Uh, (laughs) That sounds. It's the last last bullet on the top list of suppresses. Sagittal flare, sagittal, sagittal flare. I'd never heard of it, so I thought you're the lens guy. You know everything about lenses. You would know. Well, and then I tried to Google it, and I got a whole bunch of information on MRIs and brain tumors. So the only thing I I can think think of is maybe they're talking about very off-angle light coming in that creates flare by bouncing around inside of the. But I've never heard it referred to as. Sagittile. So this is a question for you guys and someone uh, smarter than me, I know, that watches this show. Uh, Go to the YouTube channel and uh, tell us what this means. It's S-A-G-I-T-T-A-L, flare. So uh, Wikipedia that for us. And I expect a report back next week on your findings. Uh, I don't know. The other thing I wanted to mention before we move on from this story is that there were rumors that Olympus was going to start releasing some F-1-2 primes, and they were all going to be autofocus, supposedly very nice uh, lenses. And we haven't seen anything from Olympus yet. Uh, the end of the year is coming soon. Do you think we'll see any announcements of new lenses in the Micro Four Thirds department when Photokina rolls around? Yes. Awesome. I <laughs> And I'm just throwing some weird questions at Mitch today, and, and they're just <laughs> falling, falling to the ground. All right. Oh, let's start a Lens Rumors website. What do you think? That sounds like a good idea. Let's call it alllensrumors.com. Okay, perfect. And no, you guys out there, don't go reserve that, okay? <laughs> All Lens Rumors. Clown will do it. All right, moving on. All right, let's move on to cases. I'm traveling to another country, and if you're traveling to another country, uh, you probably want to keep your lenses safe. That means putting them on airplanes, taking them into exotic locations, dropping them in the water, exposing them to the desert, and, of course, kicking them about like everybody does with their expensive equipment. And if you have expensive equipment and you want to keep it safe, how about 
a customized case. This is actually an interesting idea. You head over to mycasebuilder.com and they will let you design a case that is right for your equipment. Uh, they'll custom cut out anything from guns to lenses to uh, camera bodies to anything else you can shake a stick at. And it's an interesting concept, interesting idea, and these foam pads will fit in numerous types of cases, including SKB, Pelican, and so on. Now, first of all, Mitch, what do you use to haul your camera equipment around in? Uh, I currently am using a uh, 10-bug uh, bag. Uh, I also have a backpack from F-Stop. I do not have Pelican cases, but I did see these guys, actually. They were at NAB, and that was my first exposure to them. Was uh, They were over in the center of C. But anyway... Uh, I thought it was very, I actually made a note to myself to go check this out and fascinating concept. Uh, very impressed by this. I'm glad you found it. Uh, and it's not that expensive. No. They, so the thing is about this company is they don't actually sell the cases. You just go to Pelican or you go to SKB or any of the other manufacturers and you, you find a heavy duty case that you like one of the the otter cases or something like that and then you go to these guys and the foam insert can be custom made now of course pelican and these other companies sell cases that come with those little squares and you've right. seen the squares you like you, you kind of pull them apart and you pick them out and, and that sort of works but if you've ever had to do that you know that that is not very efficient it doesn't always fit your equipment properly, and in the end, that soft foam sort of deteriorates over time, and then suddenly your equipment's sort of just floating around in plenty of space. Uh, these guys are making this out of, it's almost a uh, uh, aerated, heavier plastic type of material with a, a nice coating over the top to keep everything solid, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mitch, but aren't these laser cut? Yes. So, I mean... Yeah, perfect measurements for all your stuff and you saw these at nab what did you think of the quality of the foam i thought it was very good uh that's why that's one of the reasons why i was impressed i didn't spend any time talking to the folks that were there uh there was there was a fairly decent crowd there when i got there and the problem is right i mean you're going to lose the flexibility we all love to have the little modules and all the case makers make the you know the little homies with the are not but the you know the velcro attachments you can change the size but they never quite fit the way you want them to fit and and i was fascinated by doing i mean if if you have a certain number of lenses and bodies you know making a custom uh in foam insert makes a lot of sense because you're not go ahead Oh, well, where I was going to go with this is imagine for a moment, if you will, you have a set of Canon Cinema Primes and right. you want to take those to, a, you know, to a shoot every time. It's going to be the same set of primes. You want them to be protected. If someone throws them in a lake, you get in a car accident, you know, you put them on a plane and and they get jostled around or thrown by a, a baggage claim expert. Uh, <laughs> you want them to be safe. And with something like this, you set it up once, you forget about it, the case is ready to go anytime you need it. Now, one of the other things I thought about with this is what if you designed uh, a foam insert 
that also had room for foam inserts inside of the inserts, like an inception style case. So now you have a compartment inside of your regular set. So your body's here, your lenses are here, but then over here on the side, maybe sometimes you want to take some field audio recording equipment. So you pull out that square, put in another square. Now you have a field audio recorder set up. You pull out that square, put in another square. Now you have a battery compartment. You pull out that square and, and you know, the list goes on. So you could really design multiple setups for the same case so that if you're traveling for different events, if you have different equipment that you like to pack uh, for different jobs, you could still get some flexibility with that and you could take the entire insert out and set it up for a different thing too and it, the price of these guys i mean it, it's really reasonable uh yeah. you can you can do a lot of different things on the cheap the reason this company actually came to my attention was uh i was looking at a case that came with um i believe it was uh a, one of the atomos uh, uh monitors and i was trying to figure out who did their their inserts and so I, I'm just Googling around and I came across this. I was like, oh, man, I, want, I don't know if they actually do Atomos's inserts, but this company is credited with doing quite a number of official products inserts for their cases. So really cool to check out. Mitch, you have anything to add before we move on? No, I just I it's an awesome idea if you are tired of all those other inserts that don't work. All right, next on the list is another giveaway. Mitch, tell me about this road giveaway that you got going on over at planet5d.com. Where? Planet 5D. Um, it's our current current giveaway. We have several scheduled coming up in, in the near future as well, but Road is currently uh, blessed us with what they call uh, the... I'm <laughs> trying to find it back in my notes. The Roadlink Filmmaker Kits, you get two of those. It's their uh, Video Micro and also two VLXR. I've never heard of a VLXR. but uh, VLXR is their XLR to uh, 3.5 millimeter adapter. So it's ah. like a little uh, device that allows you to plug into an XLR input on a camera body. So it's their, what they're calling an audio interview kit. Its uh, total value is $870.98, sponsored by Rode. So come over to planet5d.com slash giveaway and check that out. Awesome. Yeah, the Rode links, uh, I've tested those out a number of times. They sound really good. Uh as far as distance and range, remember, it is Wi-Fi, folks. So if you do need to go a long ways from your equipment, uh, UHF is still a pretty solid operator. Now, let's talk about encoding. Uh, this is less exciting for Mitch and probably more exciting for me. But uh, first of all, Mitch, do you know what HEVC stands for? I have seen that a bazillion times, and it sounds like HVAC, which is your heating and air conditioning acronym. But So it's weird. We've talked about H.265 in the past, but many times you see it referred to as HEVC, and that is actually high-efficiency video compression is what it stands for. And it's a little bit weird because it gets you confused when you're trying to figure out uh, what kind of Kodak is being used. Uh, it's synonymous with H.265, and the reason I bring that up is because 
ARM has released some IP that will work with standard uh, mobile GPUs as well as GPUs that are coming in the future that allow for basically on-the-fly encoding and decoding of H.265 as well as Google's open source, and I shouldn't say just Google because it's a consortium, uh, VP9, which is the competitor to H.265. This chip not only is capable of recording and decoding uh, 4K H.265 at up to 120 frames per second, but it can also handle up to 4 1080p streams at 120 frames per second simultaneously. Uh, You do have the ability to scale up or down based on the number of GPU cores that are enabled with this particular piece of IP. And you hear me say IP a couple times. The reason is that ARM doesn't actually manufacture anything. They just design the chips and then sell the rights to manufacture to other people who will license that product out and make it. Now, Mitch, this is designed for mobile products, but can you see any kind of potential in DSLRs or maybe a future GH5 body coming down the coming down the line? Well, why why specifically GH5? Um, That's just the camera that came to mind first. Okay, <laughs> we've talked about H265. Uh, multiple times on this show, we it's taking longer, I think, to absorb, or that's not the right phrase, uh, come into the market than I would like to see because the compression seems pretty impressive. Uh, we obviously want to be able to store more on less without losing any quality in H.265, not only for streaming, but for recording is is very impressive. Now, I don't know a whole lot of VP9, and you linked to an article uh, which is, I don't know if you noticed, but it's from like early 2015, so it's, it's an older article, uh, which slays me because the guy who starts the article uh, basically says at the top, this is the best, most ultimate review of H.265 versus VP9. I'm like... And then he says in the article several times, well, there's many more things we could test. Like, well, then it's not the ultimate test. Anyway, <laughs> I, get, I, I get really aggravated with people, you know, products, the ultimate product. And, and then they come out with a new one the next time. What are they going to call it next time if that last one was the, the super ultimate. ultimate or the ultimate Mark II? Anyway, I get I get. People yell at me for some of the words I use on some of my titles, but man, the ultimate streaming article is ridiculous. Well, and the reason I link to that particular article is is simply to, to say that there isn't a ton of difference in quality between VP9 and H.265. And it is interesting that while ARM has thrown out a few of the older types of compression that were used in mobile devices previously, they've included both the basically license-free, royalty-free version of encoding and H.265. So if you don't want to pay the piper, you could go the free route. And, you know, licensing for H.265, H.264, and so on, I mean, every manufacturer has to pay for the right to use that. Do you think VP9 will will start showing up in cameras for that reason? There's certainly been a lot of debate in the past about 
my understanding is that some people just use the codec without necessarily paying for the rights to use it. Um, and there was always the debate about whether or not if you use H.264, H.265, you know, as an end user, do you have to pay for it? And, and most of the licensing fees are on the responsibility of the vendor, right? So if, if Panasonic and the GH5 were to put H.265 in it, they would be paying for the rights to do that, right? If I get that yes, right? Yes, that's correct. So it's not the end user, although, of course, you would then pay for it in the cost of the product, right? So you're paying for it eventually. I haven't seen a whole lot about VP9 as as a codec anywhere. So maybe you see more about it than I do, but it's it's not commonly discussed. So maybe people aren't willing to go with the the open source route. Well, they've tried this before. Uh, with H.264, there was VP8 which was also supposed to be the free competitor. And they made inroads in web development. Uh, so you'd see some people using it because it was a little bit cheaper to have that as your video codec for uh, video storage. You didn't have to pay for all the uh, extra licensing fees, and you could use open source software to uh, basically encode your video. I don't know if they're going to move into camera bodies. It would be interesting to have that choice, but the the Kodak is missing from stuff like uh, Premiere Pro. It's missing from Final Cut. I haven't seen it implemented basically anywhere in video editing. So if that's the case, then you kind of have the cart before the horse. You're not going to see a camera with that implemented until you see a video product that's capable of editing that or will run into the dreaded H.264 problem where you had to transcode into some other uh, format in order to work with your footage. And you remember the days of Cineform. Uh, that's how the company developed it was hey guys guess what you know you have this horribly compressed h.264 codec that computers at that particular time couldn't handle let's uh sell you this uh decoding transcoding software that will put it into a format you can use and then make it easy to edit well that's not a problem now because cpus and gpus have gotten fast enough that they can handle h.264 on the fly but right now you know, we're just seeing announcements from ARM on dedicated H.265 transcoders, uh, decoder encoders, and so on. And those won't be available as a chipset until the end of this year. So, you know, how long is it going to take for either VP9 or H.265 to be implemented in a smooth editing workflow? And from what I understand, people who are shooting on the Samsung NX500, which was one of the first H.265 cameras, had to do transcoding in order to edit their footage. Right. Is that what you remember, Mitch? Yeah. Exactly. Do you want to do that? I mean, is that some a workflow that even seems remotely attractive to you? No. Ugh. Well, I could, I could suggest, by the way, that Canon, just, just to pick a name manufacturer out of the bundle, uh, Probably would never do anything with VP9 because, and I'm, I'm guessing, but they like standards that are locked in stone and supported versus something that is open source. My, my, my gut feel is they would just probably never go that route. Yeah. So 
and you know, I mean, they're constantly saying that they they produce a, a an expensive camera because it's high quality and professionals can rely on it. So if you know, we all use open source stuff. I mean, but I, I just can't see them going that route. They would they would probably pay the licensing fee and be done with it. It'll be interesting to see when the next generation of cameras start hitting the market, uh, what kind of codecs are going to be implemented. I would suspect uh, Olympus and Panasonic will probably have uh, some, uh, they'll try some newer stuff. I'm guessing Canon, as you mentioned, and Nikon will continue to uh, lead the back of the pack, so to speak. And uh, Sony will be somewhere in the middle implementing some new stuff here and there, but very sporadically and at random intervals and in unexpected ways. And that that seems to be our general trend. And then, of course, Blackmagic will give you the bleeding edge and Ah. it probably won't work for three or four years. Good job. All right, let's move on to something a little more fun. Mitch and I have talked about sharing your equipment in the past and renting out your equipment in the past. Well, here we have yet another peer-to-peer rental company. This is called Kit Split, and it's a peer-to-peer rental network for camera gear, and it's best described as Airbnb for cameras. Now, I want to stop right there and just say, why must new companies always compare themselves to some other company that is recently done well? You know, I don't want to buy the next so-and-so, so-and-so. I want to buy the thing. When you come at me with like, well, hey, we're um, we're Airbnb for breakfast or we're Airbnb for, you know, your living room. Like, what does that mean? Why don't you just say, here's what we do? So in your press releases, guys, come on. Uh, anyway, this is called uh, Kit Split. I've got a link to it in the show notes. It gives you the capability of basically listing your equipment, uh, sharing it with others, and earning some money off of that. Now, Mitch, have you taken a look at this? I did. And How does it compare uh, to the ones that you've brought to the table previously? Well, they're in the startup mode, which is, which is the problem for these kind of guys. Uh if you go out to their website and you live in St. Louis and you say, show me everything that's in St. Louis, they say, well, sorry, we're not in St. Louis yet. They're in the four major, uh, I was, I was, where is my, where's my article? Uh, probably uh, New York. They're in, they list them at the bottom, New York, Washington, DC, Philadelphia, and Boston. So, uh, they're not even out in California area yet, as far as I can tell. Uh, so it's great if you live in the major cities, but if you're out in the outlying areas, uh, that's one of the reasons why other sites, and I'll, I mentioned camera lens because I've been covering them for quite a while on, on Planet 5D. Uh, they have rentals available in gobs and gobs of cities around the country. Now, if you're in St. Louis, for example, where I am, there's only like 20 or 30 people that are listing their gear. Uh, so it's not like there is a huge choice, but it's better than nothing. You potentially can find something that's available that isn't in the local camera shops or on one of the major rental sites. I like the concept. I like being able to potentially list your own gear to rent out. But if you're in one of the smaller markets, it's 
it's a little bit more difficult. And getting started for these guys, like I'm trying to say, is very difficult because finding people. I mean, you got to get the word out. Uh, yeah. You know, getting people to know about your rental business is pretty tough. I'm looking in my area right here on uh, camera lens, and uh, there is a ton of stuff in the Portland metro area where I live that uh, it's available for actually really reasonable price. Uh, an Odyssey for $75 a day. I, I mean, that's it's fairly affordable. Uh, camera bodies for 50 bucks. Uh, lenses. Uh, I mean, I, I guess this guy wants $50 a day for his Hero 4 Black Edition, which is somewhat laughable but uh, <laughs> regardless i mean that's a that's a fair selection there i i kind of want one ring to rule them all with with this sort of thing like it can maybe the most predominant one of these uh peer-to-peer -peer lending sites just buy all the rest of them and merge them into one so that we have better coverage and and more advertising dollars well sure um you need to get on that, that mitch I have too many other businesses I'm currently trying to work on things. Uh, but again, though, I mean, maybe if, if camera lens is the biggest, and I don't know, uh, I do happen to just be more familiar with them. Uh, they probably wouldn't want to buy somebody like Kit Split because they already have pretty good coverage in the major city, right? Yeah. They would, they would be looking for coverage in areas that they weren't in. I would think that would be the way I would do acquisitions. But the other thing that I think camera lens has just gotten into is selling your gear. So if you have something to rent, you can rent it or you may want to be able to sell it. So they're, they're exp already expanding into the sales market. Whereas these other vendors are just trying to get into the rental. So they may be ahead of the game altogether, but I, it, I like you would like to see just one place to go, but that, also reduces competition doesn't it it does but the thing with uh something like this is the prices are set by the end user as opposed to the company they're just middlemen who are uh, receiving a small portion of the proceeds so uh, i think market leverage would still dictate pricing in every area you know if your lens doesn't rent for 200 dollars a day like you really want and then maybe you lower it down to 50 dollars a day and suddenly you know it's it's renting out for three or four days at a time which Right. would easily be affordable for me. And I like rentals. Uh, in fact, when I want to try out new equipment, I want to play with stuff that I may or may not wish to spend several thousand dollars on. I generally go to uh, reputable places like lensrental.com or uh, borrowers.com. There's a couple of other lens places. I think some of them are uh, Planet 5D sponsors, uh, but uh, they all do a great job. However, if I could meet someone locally and and borrow his stuff at the you know at an affordable rate and talk to him about it, you know it's interesting to get someone else's opinion who owns it. Okay, like, hey, yeah. man, you know what's the downfall of this thing? What do you like about it? You know, and then rent it in that manner. That gives you a little more information, a little bit more insight than you get just from you know picking something out on a website and and renting it. So, uh, interesting concept. I, it's something I would like to try at some point, and maybe when I get back, I'll have to uh, vow to spend fifty bucks and rent somebody's stuff for a day and play around with it and see how the process goes. Now, well, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll tell you one thing that frustrates me about camera lens, for example, and I don't know if the other services are like that, but. I was interested in, in renting a lens, 
from a young lady here in St. Louis to test out before I was thinking about buying it. Uh, the only way to contact her is through the service. Really? And and I'm frustrated because she happened to be out of town when I was thinking about renting the lens, right? And so there was the only way to get uh, the messages is to log into their system. So I think they need to improve that in that if if I want to be able to text the person because everybody reads their texts on their phones, right? They may not be logging into their camera lens or kit split or whatever. So getting messages back and forth between me and that young lady, it just failed. And I, I would love to see them improve that process. But that being said, it's a great service. I think uh, that's probably part of them wanting to keep it closed. If you start to yeah. gain contact information from uh, the person renting it, then you could feasibly bypass the service. Yeah, well, yeah, and I under I understand that, but it's also frustrating if yeah, do some sort of text off. relay or email relay of some sort that you right. can get around that sort of uh, uh, catch because you're absolutely right. I. Sometimes people send me emails, and if they're more than a page, uh, guys, to be honest, like I, I like all of you out there, but if you send me more than a page, I'm probably not going to read it unless I have plenty of time because that's just a lot of information to to gather. If you send me like two lines that are like, uh, you know, here's my question, that's awesome. I will definitely read that, and I will add it to the show notes or what have you. But if you send somebody uh, several pages, and this sort of thing is the same way, like a, a quick, simple text. Yes, I'm available. Yes, I can meet. Uh, what time, what place, bam, done. And that goes to your phone. It's way easier than checking your email, way easier than all these other uh, methods of communication. I'm not going to get into communicating yeah. with youngsters because Facebook <laughs> Messenger is not a professional way to talk to other people. You know who you are. <laughs> all right. Amen to that, bro. Uh, moving on to something a little more interesting. Are you looking to save some space on your iPhone, Mitch? Yes, of course. So what would you say to me possibly offering up a method for compressing your photos to one-seventh of the size and then loading the originals onto the quote-unquote cloud? Would that be attractive to you? Yes. Oh, well, I have the solution for you. Introducing... <laughs> Uh, the company Avis, if you're not familiar with it, they've made antivirus software for years. Uh, they've basically come up with an app for your cell phone. Uh, this app allows you to point it at a folder, compress a bunch of your photos down to a seventh of the size, and then drop them onto the internet so you have the full backups available. And I'm not an iPhone user, so I can't speak to the whole iCloud issue, but from what I understand, photos only last on the backups for so long before they are unceremoniously deleted or pushed out. Uh, in that case, if you are a phone user without the capability of upgrading your memory, which um, iPhones, uh, you know, and you're one of the people that has 16 gigs of space. I mean, does this seem like something that would be any good enough for you, Mitch, if you were uh, uh, taking a lot of photos with your phone? It would be absolutely good enough for many people, including my wife and kids, because they're constantly <laughs> bumping their heads up against that 
the constraint. Uh, I, if, if I can go on a small rant, it just absolutely drives me crazy that Apple is making so much money, so much profit, that their iCloud service is a paid service for more than XYZ. I've forgotten what their, I think it's five gigs. You, you get five gigs free when you buy the phone. But everything above that, they want you to pay $99 a year for an additional, I think it's 100 gigs. But Wow. I, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but and somebody will correct us, I'm sure. But it slays me. They're making so much freaking money that they can't match Google and give us unlimited storage for photos. Well, what, what's the deal there? Apple seems like they've always sort of failed at their online services. I mean, look at how clunky iTunes has become over the last like 10 years. It is, it is a nightmare. And I don't understand personally how people get by with only 16 or 32 gigs worth of storage on their phone. I mean, I'm looking at my phone right now and uh, I don't know if you guys can see the screen or not. Probably not, but if I turn it just right, I have 200 gig SS, uh, micro SD card in here plus another 32 gigs of storage. And my 32 gigs of storage, I have three gigs left. And my 200 gig micro SD card is using about 105 gigs right now. Uh, how do you even survive with, with a 16 gig phone? I mean, you, you download some podcasts, you uh, have a couple of videos on there, and you are SOL, let yeah. alone, uh, you know, full res images. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And then no path to upgrade your storage on your phone. I mean, I don't know. It, it, that would be extremely frustrating for myself. And then, of course, like you mentioned, Mitch, paying for storage? I mean, how many freaking companies are offering free storage to their customers? Dropbox, Google Drive, uh, Microsoft's uh, OneDrive. I mean, uh, you name it. Everybody's giving it away. You pay a premium wow. for these devices. Like, uh, obviously, they're going to steal some of your data. If you're not paying, you're the product. But, I mean, would that be worth it? Let's let's back up. To be fair, uh, Dropbox gives you two gigabytes for free, but then they charge you. I don't know about Microsoft service. I think Microsoft Google. is a, a hundred gig before they charge you or maybe, no, no, it's 10 gig. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I'm, mean, so they are charging. They're, I mean, if, if you were DJ and you got a 200 gig SSD on your phone, you're not going to find any service other than I think Google, but doesn't even Google charge they do. So the way it works is uh, Amazon is the only one that provides it sort of for free. If you have a Prime subscription, you get unlimited photo storage. Right. Uh, with uh, Google Drive, it's up to 100 gigs. And then there's certain promotional offers you can take advantage of. So if you buy like a Nexus 7 tablet, for example, which I have, you get an extra 100 gigs for free. And if you buy, uh, you know, so, so many different things, uh, it just they give it to you when you get the device. And so I have accumulated about 500 gigs worth of free storage on, uh, on G Drive that I don't have to pay for yearly because of these numerous purchases and so on. And so if you were in the ecosystem, basically they, they provide you a path to get 
as, as much or enough storage. I shouldn't say as much as you want, but uh, a very large amount of storage. And then there is no limit on photos as long as they're uh, 16 megapixel or less. So uh, that and that's free regardless. Right. So right there, I mean, uh, that sort of is free. And then if you have a Prime account, which I would say probably three quarters of uh, my friends have Prime accounts, that's unlimited photo storage, uh, quite a bit of music storage and so on. It's, I don't know. It, it just seems like maybe you're paying for your expensive phone from Apple. Part of that maybe a gift of a uh, 100 gig sound <laughs> fair, like 50 gig. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I'm with you on that. I mean, it it just slays me that Apple charges so much for their cords, um, their accessories. And and the problem is, you know, they're making huge profits on each one of those. Absolutely. Uh, you, do you remember? I, you probably don't remember, but there was a service called Copy, which was a Dropbox clone. Yes. And I wrote uh, a review like two years ago about comparing copy and uh, Dropbox. And the way they originally set it up was that if, if you gave somebody your affiliate link, right here, then you would get, uh, I think it was five gigabytes for free. And because of my review and it, and it was top one of the top ranked Google uh, links for reviews, I ended up with three terabytes of space and copy for free. Well, guess what? They shut the damn service down in May. So I lost all of that. <laughs> I was like, dang, because I was storing all kinds of stuff up there for free. But I lost that. Yeah, I used to, <laughs> way back in the day, I used uh, You Send It, uh, which yeah. if you remember from the 90s was a, a method for sending large files via email to other people. You would upload it to You Send It and then they would send them an email link. Uh, they later became uh, a file storage service and then I think they changed their name to like Hottail or Hightail or something like that. And uh, at the time, I had I'd stumbled into something similar to what you're talking about where they basically told me, uh, unlimited storage. Congratulations. You know, good job. And then I get an email, uh, like last year or the year before that's like, uh, you know, you have uh, six months to download all your stuff before our service goes away and we change your name to whatever we're changing it to. And now you can get a convenient subscription fee service and yeah. you start looking at the back end of it and what are they doing? They're basically switching over to, uh, Amazon's S cloud in order to uh, accommodate all their own storage, so they they're outsourcing someone else's storage to sell to you at a premium, which is like yep. that, I don't, that's frustrating yeah. as all get out. Yeah. Yeah. All right, moving on because we got two more things to cover before we get out of here. Mitch, tell me about Legion M because I have no idea what this is about, and it's in the show notes. Um. Well. I'll I'll be frankly honest that I don't know a whole lot about it because I saw this uh, posted on Facebook while I was in Chicago, and I quickly shoved it up to uh, Planet ID because I thought it was very interesting. My my uh, virtual assistant did most of the blog posts for me. Uh, it's it, Legion M is a studio that is being started up where. They have done an initial round of investments uh, so the, the rich people could get in and, and try to get involved. 
and now they've opened it up for the average Joe. And I think the minimum is a hundred bucks and you get one share. But what they're trying to do is to be a crowdsourced kind of movie studio. And they're, they're not, as far as I can understand, they're not going to be uh, investing in DJ's horror flicks. Uh, the <laughs> folks, uh, I don't think, I think they're going after the major studio kinds of movies. Uh, but if you want to be involved, they've they've opened it up and they liken it to buying a share of Apple stock. Uh, so they will be including shareholders in some meetings. So you will be able to dial in. I say dial in. Do people still dial in? Uh, you could be able <laughs> to, to tune in on some pre-production uh, meetings, uh, get involved in helping them to decide which movies to produce, et cetera, et cetera. I thought it was an interesting concept, and so I wanted to expose people to it and do, do your own due diligence, of course. I'm not recommending anybody buy it or not because I just don't know enough about it, but I've, I thought it would be good to get the, the info out there in case people wanted to get in on the Kickstarter because I think they're getting you involved by running a Kickstarter project. I'm looking right now, and it looks like uh, Seth Green from uh, Robot Chicken and many other things uh, is uh, involved in this. So that's that's kind of interesting. It is yeah. cool that uh, they're sort of open sourcing this, and uh, not open sourcing. I so crowdfunding this. And crowdfunding. now, does your share? Uh, are you able to sell it back to them? Do you know how that share system works? Because I mean, you know, I chip no, in a hundred bucks. Is my hundred bucks still a hundred dollars down down the road, or? I mean that, that that part's a little strange. When when you start well, comparing it to a stock option, it's like, well, I should be able to have upside dividends. And you know what happens if I want to bet against this stock? And like, uh, you know, yeah. Again, I at this point, like I said, I was in Chicago. I saw it, gave it a brief look, wanted to see what other people thought about it. Mm-hmm. I think obviously, if you're investing and you would own a share of the company then the assumption is that later on down the road, there will be some way of selling that share or shares. And theoretically, if they have increased in value, then you could make money on it. But I, I, I did not have the time to go dive in and see any of that information. Now, I've got a question for you, Mitch. Uh, okay. You've talked to a, a lot more people and you remember a lot more names than I do. Uh, what are some of the investment strategies you've heard for people trying to gather money for their film projects or their passion projects or their art projects of, of some kind? Uh, there's a lot of prostitution going on. <laughs> <laughs> Raising money is one of the hardest things out there. And I don't have a whole lot of experience of doing it myself. Of course, uh, I have had experience with going in and approaching vendors uh, saying, uh, you know, back me because I have a well-established brand. Uh, send me a little bit of money and help me pay to go to NAB or something. I've never actually done that, but I, I have been involved in trying to raise money that way. And most of the vendors are so sick of hearing those kind of things, they don't want to talk to you anymore. Uh, you know, they, hey, can you lend us some gear? Wink, wink, we'll feature you in our behind the scenes. 
Uh, they just don't even listen to that kind of stuff anymore because they've got thousands of, of pitches every month with people trying to do that. Uh, so Kickstarter, you know, fund, go fund me. Those kind of things are difficult, which is why there's a whole bunch of sites now or books or training classes that you can get to uh, try to help you with that. Uh, there's a service called Thunderclap. I don't know if you've heard of them. No. Uh, Thunderclap is interesting because what you try to do is leverage your social media. So let's say you're going to have a Kickstarter project. Uh, you're going to try to raise money for your fabulous film, and you're going to launch it on July 4th. So what you do is you go to Thunderclap and you sign up, and I think it. I think there's a free version, and I think for 100 bucks uh, there's a enhanced version. You say, okay, I'm going to ask all of my friends and neighbors to uh, help me. And if you get 100 people to sign up, so let's say I ask you, I'm going to launch my thing. You go to Thunderclap with the link that I give you, and you say, yes, I will help you. And what they're going to do is on July 4th, they're going to send social media tweets to your audience from me. So if I'm going to launch my movie fundraiser on July 4th, what you're doing is lending me your audience for that day. And I think they will only do one tweet or one Facebook post or whatever. But so I am I am leveraging your audience. And so if I get you and Barry and Paula and 100 other people, then I'm growing my potential audience, which is a fabulous way of doing it. Uh, so that would be your big launch kick would be through something like thunderclap uh, that's a great service it's one way of trying to get the message out to social media but if can of course that's a one-time thing the next day you know it's gone because people don't read yesterday's yeah facebook messages or tweets or whatever so but it, it theoretically gives you a good boost uh, on, on your lawn one issue I've always had uh, uh, doing feature-length films is uh, uh, money raising, and our approach has always been feet to the ground. So we take out our previous products that have uh, sold, made money, and uh, we run them around the convention circuits. I have to do speaking events. I have to uh, basically kiss the babies. You know, I run around, sign stuff, uh, talk to uh, interested fans. And we have to move product in order to raise money for the next film. Uh, we do get some funding from investors, but I would say that only uh, equals maybe 30%, 40% of the, of the actual funds required to make a feature-length film. And I've never done it any other way, so I, I'm always interested to hear other people's approaches. When I started, I basically gathered up maybe $15,000 and made a film, a full film, and it was garbage. Yeah, I mean, it was complete garbage. I did it when I was like 20 and uh, we sold the the heck out of it and made enough to make the next, next feature like film. And then people got interested in us and said, OK, you know, if we can get a little bit of return on our investment, we'll invest in you for this next film. So we got a little bit of their funding, our funding and put together next film. And, and you know, pretty soon you start making adequate films, you know, not, not amazing, but adequate. And uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I would, and now when I see Kickstarter campaigns where it's like, uh, you know, I'm going to make a short film, give me $10,000. Like, well, 
you know, baby, I like you, okay, but I don't know that you simply asking for ten thousand dollars makes you uh, deserve ten thousand uh, dollars. It, right. I have to hustle for for my next feature like film. Uh, maybe it's wrong of me to say that everybody should have to hustle as well, but uh, maybe that will make you a little more invested in your in your end uh, product. I, I don't know. Uh, well, let me ask you. So if if you're getting an investor, so Kickstarter, if I give you a hundred bucks on Kickstarter, other than maybe you give me a DVD or something, I get no return on my money. Right. Okay. So are you, as a filmmaker, finding investors and you're giving them 10% of the gross or, you know, so you're, you're suggesting to them that, if, hey, if you give me $10,000, I'll give you 12000 in return. So the, like the inside scoop is actually we work, uh, a lot of the people that do invest in the films that we make uh, have an angle. So, for example... Uh, there are a number of theaters that I've approached, and they do indie screenings on a regular basis. As part of the donation to the film, we give them X number of free stock in re- exchange, uh, DVDs, posters, and so on. And then they can sell them during screenings for 20 to $30 a pop, and they're, they're limited edition specialty items that you can only get at their venue so because of that we're basically giving them uh not the license print money but something that no one can get anywhere else not even from me uh personally so that they have value add when they do these events and they'll they'll do a big event they'll have a booth they'll sell several hundred uh dvds with you know custom posters special made products and so on and all those proceeds go directly to repay their investment in the film. And it usually works out to – they break even, plus they make maybe uh, 10 or 20% on their investment in the process. It's, it's not huge, but uh, it also generates groundswell because people that are excited about the film come to their venue. They also buy popcorn. They buy all the other things that are associated uh, with a regular uh, live screening. And because of that, they they also earn lifetime customers, people who wouldn't have otherwise gone to the venue. So I kind of try to work it so that I can provide a value for them. As far as like, at the end of this, you know, we make this much money, you get X percent. No, nah, I never promise that because that's dangerous. Right. <laughs> you, you start doing that and, you know, you're in the hole. You, you tell people you're not paying them back, then... Uh, <laughs> It could be a rough go for me. I don't want my kneecaps uh, broken out by any means. Right. Well, yeah. All of the stuff that I have done, like the the one uh, short that Barry and I produced, um, you know, we invested our own money and, and got some sponsors that were purely getting exposure. They weren't expecting any kind of profit return, and we didn't sell DVDs or anything else. We didn't kickstart it. We did nothing. Uh, so I'm fascinated to see exactly what you're doing and, oh. and, and finding sponsors that are actually willing to put in money in hopes of making money as opposed to just losing it, putting yeah. it in the black hole. One of the ones that – and somebody's going to steal this idea now, but I'll, I'll throw it out there for free. Oh. Thanks, guys. Merry Christmas. Um, whenever I make a feature-length film, I throw in a drinking game of some sort. And by throwing in the drinking game – 
you can sometimes get local bars and other uh, drinking constabularies to give you uh, some money for your film in return for screening the drinking games at their events or at their you know special nights. And so you have to get a couple of actors and actresses together and the you know the director and uh, a few of the other people to show up and they show up and they do the screening they do a little pitch before the screening like here's the drinking game that goes along with this every time you see like a head chopped off you take a shot or whatever <laughs> and so uh, then it becomes this like sort of fun interactive game and you'll gather like 50 or 60 people in a, a medium-sized bar and they'll all be cheering and laughing and they got to meet with the actors and directors and you know if we have any uh, feminine beauties that are uh, scantily clad you know we'll have them come in in their outfits for the show you know stuff like that and that's a value add for the bar as well so then you know they're willing to chip in several thousand dollars for uh, that sort of event and by doing an event like that you're basically raising proceeds again for your next film the the best way i've ever found to to bring in money though is meet and greets at festivals you have a booth, you go to the booth, you sell your DVDs, and you talk to every person that comes by. Uh, your name gets out there, people buy your DVDs, they're willing to pay a premium because you're there talking to them, you sign autographs, you tell them about how the film was made, you, you, you make them feel like they're part of the process, and they will gladly part with their 15 or $20. It's sort of like Kickstarter, I suppose, except that it's not because they get to meet you in person and they get to talk to you. And when they leave your booth, they are walking away with merchandise of some kind. And we all know that DVD printing and, and Blu-ray printing is, you know, a dollar or less a disc. So, you know, $30, you just made $29 right there to go to your next film. Uh, you save all that up and then eventually, you know, you have enough to make another feature length film. Uh, do you make a minimum wage while you're doing it? Absolutely not. You know, we have four people there. I, I did the calculations and it was depressing. We worked uh, through an entire weekend and we made a substantial amount. But with five people, I think it worked out to uh, maybe uh, $4.90 an hour for everybody that it attended. Which, you know, that's ridiculous. But, you know, no one else is going to give you money. So if you want to make a film, you get hustle. <laughs> that's awesome, though. I mean, that's I. I don't know that I ever would have thought of that on my own. So, great. And I wish I knew other methods to share with you guys. I talked to other filmmakers and a lot of them, it's just like, I max out two credit cards. I made my film, please buy it. And then either it sells well or it does not sell well. And if you have a niche market, I know a guy that does puppets. He does these very um, anatomically correct puppets and they does horror movies with them. And they do really well, like, uh, you know, there's all the scenes you'd expect out of a horror movie only with puppets. And, and it's, they're funny, they're interesting, and they, they kind of fill a weird market. And he doesn't do any kind of sales work at all. His stuff just sells. And that's awesome. But then, you know, you have other people that spend $100,000 on their film and travel the convention circuit. No one likes it. No one buys it. And they are the sad booth attendees. And I have no idea if that's their, like, uh, house that they pulled money out of to buy their film or put their film together. It's just, it's so weird. I don't understand the market that I'm in, which is strange as well. So, uh, Anyway, that's getting really deep, deep dive no, here. That's fascinating stuff. Um, I know a guy that financed the movie on his own. 
Uh, he told me he spent $250,000 on it, and it was... I, I actually went to Arizona to watch them shoot it. Um, I watched the final movie, and it was not that good. Um, and, and we also did a story one time about a couple that was making the movie, and they sold their house. It was a $200,000 house, and they... We, we did like a seven, five or seven day expose. They gave us all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. And it was just their passion project. And they were bound and determined to make that movie. And they sold their house and were living in an apartment and everything else. So they're, it's, it's fascinating to see how people make money. Well, and that's so weird. I've been hired by uh, groups like that before where, you're getting paid to do the job. So you show up and, you know, you're camera operator, you're the uh, uh, sound guy, you know, you're directing and I, I'm getting paid for it. So that's awesome. But then you start talking to the people that are funding this and they have some wacky, crazy dream about, you know, being uh, the death metal king of the Midwest or, you know, uh, uh, one guy was going to create the sports documentary that would change the world. <laughs> I mean, I got paid for it. That's awesome. But, uh, uh, you know, when you hear their pitch, it's like you are in a bad way, man. At the at the end of this, uh, I fear for your financial freedom. You're probably hopefully McDonald's will take you and you, you can work off your debt for the rest of your life. I mean, uh, and that's scary. And I can't do anything. I mean, I'm a working professional as well. So I, you know, you hire me, I do my job, I, I'm done. But uh, you can't turn them away and say like, listen, buddy, you shouldn't pay me. You shouldn't hire anybody. You should just walk away from this before it even gets started. Cause this is a flaming hot mess. Yeah. And you, you go look on Amazon, watch some of the stuff you'll find on Netflix. And there are thousands of flaming hot messes on there. So somebody is sinking their money into, uh, basically the wastelands, uh, yep. left and right. And it's, it's happening. So, uh, who am I to judge? I guess uh, continue on, march forward, create your art. Uh, if it sucks, good luck. Move on. Yeah. All right. Last thing here before we get out of here is this funny shot that Mitch uh, put together. We talked about the uh, failed. Um, what is it? That's the one that's made out of rubber bands, isn't it? The uh, special uh, stabilizing arm that uses the the rubber bands instead of the springs. Correct. And I say steady cam. It's not a technically a steady cam. It, I don't know what the generic term is. Maybe we. Yeah, uh, uh, mounting arm. Anyway, uh, Mitch put this together. It's pretty funny. Uh, it's just the, this uh, $60,000 camera bouncing on the ground before face planting and the shocked looks of the people around as it fails. Well, so. I, I sure got a kick out of. Um, one news magazine uh, that I won't name that gave a, you know, we were talking about uh, shocking titles and they said $70,000 camera smashed to the ground like if you read the comments on the YouTube video several people who were there said they caught the camera it never, the lens and the camera were perfectly fine and yes it was a $40,000 Amira and a $15,000 lens or whatever, but it wasn't broken and, and talk about clickbait titles. But um, I, that poor guy. The other thing that I think was sad about it 
and I don't know who the guy is. If you look in the YouTube comments on the YouTube video, uh, there are a couple of people who specifically name the gentleman who's who's wearing the vest. Oh man, really? It's I think it's unfortunate because the the internet rushed to judgment. Uh, I don't know whether that arm should have been able to handle the weight of that camera, but I don't think if you watch the earlier bits, uh, he's kind of dancing around with that thing, and I, he lets go of it, and I don't know that if I were an operator, I would have let go of that camera at all. But uh, for for people on YouTube to name the guy and uh, basically he's got a big black mark in his yeah uh, repertoire because some people are like well i hire dps all the i hire camera guys all for all i'm never hiring him again <laughs> you know i mean his 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 reputation took a big hit well and it wasn't um, his fault either i mean uh the equipment failure from what i read uh about this was actually a a clasp not the arm itself there was a clasp on the mount that was from a lighter version of the vest and it wasn't meant to be used with that much weight so the arm could take it but the clasp that the arm mounted into was from the lower lower tiered model and so the clasp actually broke apart and that's what released the camera and let it fall to the ground and i mean this this is a problem we've seen with other rigs remember that um I think, yeah, wasn't it the Red Rock micro rig, or maybe it was? Uh, I don't no, know. Red Rock would never make anything. Like no, that. it wasn't Red Rock that made it. It was the. It was somebody <laughs> made a knockoff of a Red Rock micro, or maybe it was a Zucuto rig, right. and so the entire rig was made out of uh, Zucuto parts or Red Rock parts, except for one section that somebody had gotten on eBay, and it looked the same, so you couldn't tell, and that was the part that failed. And right. they were like, well, you, you know, you make bad rigs. And it turned out it wasn't the case. It was just that that particular piece was made out of really cheap metal and the rest of it was made out of good metal. And that was the part that failed, not the the expensive part. So, I mean, you know, if you're running a cheap camera and a cheap rig, that's one thing. But if you're rocking uh, $70,000 or $80,000 worth of camera, spend a little extra <laughs> on the good stuff guys you know don't don't cheap out on some little piece of hardware because this right here is what could happen to yeah. you and yeah, you don't want to be that guy either that poor guy yeah. all right yeah, I, I feel bad for that guy he, he's a big curl on that note the sun is coming out it is time for me to make some breakfast mitch where can people find you I'm a, I run a website called Planet5D. And don't forget the giveaway that we're doing right now. That's Planet5D.com slash giveaway noob. Giveaway noob. Find giveaway a link noob. to that in the show notes, guys. And on that note, you can find me at DSLRFilmNoob.com. You can find me on Twitter at DSLRFilmNoob. You can find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and anywhere podcasts are distributed. It is great to have you guys all show up for the show. We love hearing from you. So thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Be sure to like, rate, subscribe. And again, the giveaway is Mitch. Planet5D.com slash giveaway noob. That's N-O-O-B if you've never spelled noob before. (laughs) And the noobs are out for the day. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on another episode of the Noobs 
podcast.